Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to True Crime, the podcast that helps you find new, emerging, and undiscovered true crime podcasts. I'm Greg, the host and curator of True Crime. We made it to 2023. Thank you so much for helping make 2022 such an amazing year for Indie Drop-In and this true crime show. True Crime was downloaded over a million times in 2022, and we couldn't have done it without you. So before we get started on today's episode, I just wanted to ask you a quick favor. Only 40% of listeners actually follow True Crime. So if you could take a second in your app right now and just hit that follow button, that'll ensure every week you get a new episode from an indie true crime podcast. We want to get that percentage above 60%. If we can get to 100%, that'll be amazing. I don't know if that's possible. Who knows what's possible in 2023? Anything could be possible, but I know it won't be possible if you don't stop what you're doing and hit follow on whatever app you're listening to right now. Enough of that. I hope you have an amazing 2023 and I'm going to be in your ear every week. Today's episode is from Vintage Homicide. Vintage Homicide is two forensic scientists bringing you vintage murders and how they were solved before DNA. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know how much I love this vintage, old-timey, true crime niche. I just think it's absolutely interesting to have a retrospective view of crimes of the past, you know, really look at it from a modern perspective, and this is a great show to do that. This episode is called Murderous Pricks. If you like today's episode, make sure to check out the episode description for links to subscribe. All right, let's get this show started. Begin. This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Ms. Ruby Wild and Ms. Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. So we're going to start today's episode not quite with a dad joke, but we're just going to jump in because these men seem to love being little pricks. I cannot sugarcoat this case in case there are diabetics listening. Mm, okay. <laughs> we're jumping into insulin. Yeah. That's a nice so. little segue. So May 3rd, 1957 in Thornbury Crescent in Bradford, Yorkshire, forensic pathologist, Dr. David Price needed to be called to the Barlow home. Kenneth Barlow had come home to find his wife, Elizabeth, unconscious in the bath at 1120 p.m. Instead of calling the police, he instead called his own doctor. So his primary care physician who declared her dead the next morning. So a fun side note, in the United Kingdom, the emergency number was 999, and we briefly touched about this in the Kitty Genovese episode because her death instituted 911, which was like well behind the UK's 999. Right. So in the United States, 911 didn't become a thing until 1968. 
Right. And in this case, it's 1957 and 999 was instituted in 1938. Right. So this isn't one of those cases where, you know, you have to look up your local emergency number. He could have just dialed 999, but instead he chose to dial up his own doctor instead of calling for immediate help. So Kenneth was a 38-year-old unemployed nurse. Keep that in mind. The couple had been married less than one year, and they lived with his 10-year-old son from a previous marriage. Kenneth's version of events went that she had tea at 5 p.m., and then shortly after, she went to bed. And Kenneth went upstairs at 9.30 p.m. He then found that Elizabeth had vomited in the bed. So he had to change the sheets or bedclothes. She then changed into her pajamas So she was in her pajamas, puked in the bed all over herself. So she removed her pajamas and went to go take a bath while Kenneth was changing the sheets. Kenneth fell back asleep. And when he woke up at 1120 p.m., Elizabeth was still in the bathtub, but she had sunk under the water. He claimed he didn't have the strength to lift her from the tub. So instead, he held her head above water while he drained the tub. And then he tried CPR by pressing on her abdomen while she was still in the bathtub. He then ran next door to use the neighbor's phone to ring the doctor rather than his own home phone. All of these things are a little bit wonky. She wasn't obese or anything. So there's really no like he could have slid her from the bath. He could have climbed in there with her and lifted her out. Like there's a hundred different ways he could have gotten her out of the bathtub. But he chose to leave her in there claiming that even as a former nurse, or he's still a nurse, even as an unemployed nurse, rather than performing proper CPR on a flat surface, he was like, oh, I just pushed on her abdomen yeah. to try and expel some water. When a he little the unusual. Doc- uh, just a little, a little suspicious. And mm-hmm. so when the family doctor arrived about 10 minutes after Kenneth had called him, so I don't think this is at like 1130. I think it's still a little bit later in the night. He found Elizabeth in the empty bathtub and he touched her enough to just confirm that she died. So he didn't want to mess up any evidence or anything. He just checked her pulse. She didn't have one. And it was him who called the police. And then the police called the forensic pathologist, Dr. Price, who was the on-call home office forensic pathologist, Mm -hmm. which would be like our coroners or what are they called? The other one, Um, medical examiner. Yeah. So that's what they called our home office. Dr. Price arrived around 2 a.m. and he saw that Elizabeth had a small amount of water in the crook of her elbow and he measured it and it was 100 milliliters. And that would not have happened if the events went, as Kenneth said, with all of the movement that he put her through. So he's saying, oh, I like lift her out of the tub. I drained the tub. Then I was pushing on her abdomen and I kept trying to like move her around to do things properly. But the way her elbow was it had retained the water, meaning that her elbow or arm most likely hadn't moved since the tub had been drained. Right. He also wasn't comfortable accepting that Elizabeth had died only from drowning because she was a healthy 32-year-old woman. Mm -hmm. He also noticed that she had dilated pupils Mm -hmm. and her pajamas had been soaked with sweat to have her vomit and have her pajamas soaked with sweat and then basically passing out in a tub with dilated pupils to cause drowning, he was like, I think that there's some sort of drug involved here. And so police decided to search the home and they did locate the vomit stained pillowcase and the pajamas she had worn, as well as some syringes in the kitchen. Dr. Price conducted her autopsy and did confirm that she had drowned. 
She had fluid in the lungs, fluid retention, and some small hemorrhages, I believe, also in her lungs. Right. And all of this is kind of hallmark for the diagnosis of a drowning. In general, we've touched on this before in another case, how drowning is really one of the most difficult things in forensic pathology to actually recognize. This is just because there's a lot of different sort of pathological things that are nonspecific. Drowning, what it is basically, is the death through the aspiration of fluid into the air passages. And signs of immersion only demonstrate that the body was submerged in a in some sort of water for a period of time. So that is not necessarily meaning drowning. No. So froth and in the mouth and nose is kind of what they look for and lung distension. So the the hemorrhages that you're talking about is by doing lung histology, they can see lesions which are called emphysema aqueosum in sort of the lung tissue. Sometimes, they, like I said before in a previous episode, they can do a diatom test. In this case, because she's in a residence, that would not really be relevant because no. she's not found in a uh, lake or ocean or something in the environment. So that would not be, that's kind of one way they confirm this. So that would not happen in this case. And generally speaking, there's vasal reflex that occurs when you inhale water. So again, if someone is drowning and they are conscious, you're going to get this reflex where you're struggling to breathe and you're going to see sort of physical consequences to that. That's usually by also looking at the lung histology. And in her case, because I think they suspect that she was unconscious at the time, you would not have the basal reflex. No. All that the doctor was able to see was that there was liquid in the lungs. I'm not sure if he had seen frothing around the nose and mouth, because again, if someone's unconscious, well, if not... she was submerged, it would have washed all that away. Yeah. And and that's also the case too, right? Because I think his claim, Kenneth's claim is that he found her completely submerged, right? right. Not partially submerged, but from well, we've seen like the nasal foam for somebody who hadn't drowned as well. Correct. Cause it, again, it's a non-specific yeah. like thing. It doesn't necessarily just present in people who have drowned it. It can be caused by other things specifically in this case, all that he has is the fact that the victim is found in a bathtub. There's somebody saying that she drowned, right? Her husband and she has water in her lungs and there's lung histology that kind of shows and reflects that. Sometimes also in other cases, they're looking at the skin because sometimes the skin will wrinkle in that like washerwoman's skin that we know. Yeah. But again, a lot of these things are bodies in water for prolonged periods of time. So he did confirm this basically due to the, the facts of the case surrounding her as well as the, the liquid content in the lungs. Right. And so it is, she did definitely drown. And when she drowned, he found that she was also eight weeks pregnant, but he still was not fully convinced that she had just drowned, like falling asleep in the bathtub. So he decided to pull out bright lights and a magnifying glass. And he went over every inch of her body and he found two needle marks on each butt cheek. 
So I believe that it said two needle marks on each butt cheek. So I'm assuming that is four injection sites. Okay. He removed the areas of the needle injection. So he excised the the puncture wounds and then he stored those in the fridge. And he also recovered blood from various locations in her body, Mm -hmm. as well as a small amount of urine from her bladder. And the reason that you have to recover the blood from different areas is the circulatory system. It may not have pumped whatever was in her body to all areas, 100% of her bloodstream. Right. So the samples were tested for known poisons and drugs, and they found nothing. But Dr. Price, this guy's amazing. He immediately thought maybe she was injected with insulin. Yeah. Because nothing else was coming up. Right. So he, he was looking to determine whether or not there was some sort of evidence of some type of drug, pharmaceutical or otherwise. And because he wasn't getting confirmation of anything, he had thought about insulin, which was not quite sure what led him down that pathway. Like but, I said, he's just brilliant. Like, but it was brilliant. He went over the symptoms that she had, you know, the dilated pupils, the vomiting, the night sweats. Yeah. You know, all of that, I think all of her symptoms. Right. And so that kind of led him to think that these are things that when somebody who has diabetes, they would have an experience similar symptoms. So, right. yeah, it was really interesting because we have to think back at this time period. So this is in the fifties and insulin at the time really just began to be developed recently in the last like 20 years. So right. insulin wasn't developed until 1922. And so insulin has a very interesting history medically. And I kind of did this like crazy deep dive on like the medical journals of how it kind of came about. And it is a little interesting and contentious in terms of the scientists involved and who ends up ultimately winning the Nobel prize. But so we're going to just kind of talk a little bit about insulin. So we know insulin modernly because it's used to treat diabetes. The term diabetes comes from the Greek word diabetes, which means (laughs) siphon or pass through and the Latin word mellitus, which means honey or sweet. In 1889, Joseph von Mehring and Oscar Gowski, they found that removing the pancreas from dogs led them to develop diabetes and die shortly afterwards. So now scientists have connected the pancreas to diabetes. And so they knew that there was something about the pancreas that had involvement with diabetes. And so this is because um, the pancreas regulates blood sugar levels. So that's how that first discovery comes about in 1889. So then in 1910, there's a scientist named Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer proposes that diabetes developed when there was a lack of a particular chemical that the pancreas produces. So he called that insulin, meaning island, because the cells of the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas produce it. So that's the next discovery along the way that ultimately will lead to the development and invention of insulin as a medicine. And he is credited with coming up with the term insulin. And then in 1921, there's a doctor sorry, he's not a doctor. He's researching. He's a researcher under a doctor. His name is Frederick Banting. And there's another research assistant named Charles Best. They introduced the extract of the pancreatic islet cell from healthy dogs. And then they introduce it into dogs with diabetes. 
So they take like macerated dog pancreas from healthy dogs, and then they put it into dogs with diabetes, and they saw that it reversed diabetes. This basically marked the discovery of the hormone insulin. So they worked with two other scientists at the time to purify the insulin that they took from the pancreas of cows. And this was because they were trying to develop it for a treatment of diabetes in humans. And then in January of 1922, they did a proof of concept and they tested it on a 14-year-old boy named Leonard Thompson. And he was the first person to receive an injection of insulin to treat diabetes. And then Thompson, it was successful. Thompson lived another 13 years with the condition, and then he eventually died of pneumonia, not diabetes. So that's kind of the history in a nutshell. What's interesting here is that there are a lot of steps that lead to the discovery of insulin, and it really overlaps with the history of diabetes and pancreatic anatomy. So there's so many, many other scientists, and I just kind of want to like give them a little bit of credit because in the record, really the the discovery of insulin gets awarded as a Nobel Prize to Banting and somebody named McLeod. I don't know. McLeod. McLeod. Is that how you pronounce that? Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's Scottish, I guess. Yes. In 1923. So those two individuals are awarded the Nobel Prize for physiology or medicine. It's super contentious because there are so many scientists at that same time that were working kind of together to create the insulin medication. And so Best, research assistant named Best, there's a researcher named Collip, and there's a person named Palesu. They were all excluded and they had really, really notable, significant kind of advancements in research that kind of led ultimately for Banting to recreate these studies to do the proof of concept, which ultimately leads to the medicine. And so to compensate for this, Banting and McLeod decide to divide up their prize money and give it to Collip, but Nobel and Palesu were both excluded from the discovery of insulin. So it's really weird. It kind of just gets credited to Banting mostly, but there's a ton of scientists kind of in between there. And notably, I'll point out a American woman in 1906. She's an American pathologist and anatomist. Her name was Lydia Maria Adams DeWitt. And she ligated- That's a loaded name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is probably why they all got forgotten in the annals of like medical history, because they all have such crazy names. But she ligated the pancreatic ducts of some cats and observed an exocrine pancreas atrophy from the Langerhans Islands. And so she- Wait, for the non-scientific listeners, ligated, define it. So, okay. So she basically (sighs) severed, cut away the pancreatic ducts out of the pancreas itself in cats. So she was trying to narrow down specifically the the mechanism, the pathway in which insulin was being made. So in in bodies in general, where insulin is actually made. Okay, so so she's like tracing by cutting out different sections and saying, okay, insulin is here, it's not here, it is here. Right. Gotcha. So she creates this system of studies where she's, removing portions of the cat's pancreas to see 
you know, what is actually responsible for that. And so she cuts away this section from the Langerhans Islands. And that's when she discovers that that's where the insulin is actually being made from. And that's what is useful in the treatment of diabetes. So her discovery in 1906 kind of allows everyone to start focusing on the Langerhans Islands, right? Part of the pancreas. Before that, we didn't know. We knew the pancreas in general, just didn't know specifically where in the pancreas. So that's how we focus on the Langerhans Islands. There's a bunch of European scientists that kind of also recreate and reproduce these studies. And then that's why Banting was able to kind of formulate his research and reproduce these studies because he was inspired by so many other scientists. One of those was Eugene Gley, which basically had the same hypothesis that the Langerhans Islands secreted this substance capable of preventing the elimination of glucose through the urine. So he tested that hypothesis originally, and he did it in dogs. That's kind of the study that inspired Banting to recreate these studies about 25 years later after Glay, which ultimately leads to the discovery of insulin. And the reason why I think Banting gets credited it is because they published their results in the American Society of Physiology in December of 1921. So- yeah, it's kind of it's, like the long history, but it's very fascinating because it has such a huge impact on our society today. Oh, completely. So many people at the time previous to the 20s were dying of diabetes. Right. And it's treatable today. And mm -hmm. it, on top of everything, so once they've discovered it and they got their Nobel Prize in 1923 and everybody figured out what insulin can do, they also figured out what an overdose of insulin could do because it does cause the blood sugar to drop dangerously. Right. So within two years, somebody used it to commit suicide. Oh, I see. It happened real quick. That makes sense. It, be, it would become a way that people could medically induce their own death. Yep. So it took two years for somebody to realize that this could be used to cause a death and mm -hmm. they used it on themselves. Until this time, Dr. Price there was no published papers figuring out a way to test for insulin in the body tissues. So we know how to test for insulin in the pancreas, but how do you do it in flesh, like in an injection site? And so he found some researchers who were developing the basic method to determine if there was an abnormally high amount of insulin in tissue samples. So we are at yeah. the precipice, smack dab right at the very beginning of people trying to figure out how to find insulin in body tissues. The tissue samples that are used, the insulin, it's an intramuscular injection. Mm -hmm. So the drug would stay at the injection site and then disperse from there. Right. When he excised those areas that had the injection site, that would have had the highest concentration of insulin had that been an insulin injection. Right. And so he knew Dr. Price couldn't do these studies himself, but he researched and found somebody who could. Yes. Right. So you're right. At that time, there wasn't a lot of people who could conduct these type of studies well, um, and they had or no testing. Need to. Right. And the only relevant need was for creating medication for humans. So trying to find out what that medical dosage was. So by doing that, you would have to figure out what is 
a lethal dose, what is not good medical amounts. And so at the time they were doing this, they were doing this by comparing those injection amounts in mice. Right. So, and like, but you also, if you think about it, all of our injections, anybody in the medical field would know you have to calculate a person's body mass mm-hmm. to figure out the proper dose. Well, since this is intramuscular, you have to figure out the dispersion rate. Yeah. So, and so that's the reason that they were doing this. It was not for homicide investigation. Right. It was not applied to murder investigations. It was only being applied in a therapeutic sense to understand and how to create a dose that was appropriate for medical use for someone who had diabetes. Right. So So the mice that they were using to supplement this study. Right. So the way that these studies would work is they relied on finding the dose that caused hypoglycemic convulsions in mice. And then they compared the sample with standardized samples containing known amounts of insulin right? So it was a method at the time used to measure the strength of the pharmaceutical insulin extracted from animal pancreases before releasing it for use by patients. So Dr. Price finds a doctor named Dr. M.R. Gerd of a research laboratory for the Boots Drug Company, which was one of the three British manufacturers of insulin at that time. And Dr. Gerd undertook and performed those tests. Right. He did not think that this was going to be very successful because, again, it was not the application of why we would conduct these tests. So he thought that the technique might not be sensitive enough to detect the small amount of insulin that would be found in those tissue samples that Dr. Price took from her body. So he, he was how- proven wrong. <laughs> yes. However, he did those studies and he found measurable quantities of insulin extracts in those tissues taken from Elizabeth's buttocks. Correct. He found 84 units of insulin, which Mm -hmm. for reference, 84 units would keep two insulin dependent patients alive for an entire day. So to say it was an overdose is understating it. And then his control was actually, he took um, injection sites from other decedents, uh, people that had died at the time and attempted to also extract the insulin from those tissues and zero insulin was found. So this wasn't like a byproduct of death, nor was it a byproduct of getting an injection prior to death. Of note, Elizabeth did not have diabetes. So she had absolutely no reason to have insulin injected into her at any point. Yeah. So it was definitely abnormal. Yeah. So we did find a single article that mentioned something like an anomaly could not verify anywhere else, but this is a published journal article. Yes. So it's been peer reviewed, fact checked, everything. And what they discovered at this time is the blood on the right side of the heart would have elevated glucose levels for people who died in a violent way. Yeah. And it was only in the heart. Not the case for anywhere else in the body. Correct. And so, like I said, single journal article, we did some due diligence, couldn't find it published anywhere else, but that's probably because everybody was like, it's done. There's no need to redo it. Yeah. So it was interesting, fun fact about that. It was kind of like a side thing that we learned as a result of the history of, you know, developing insulin. Right. So Kenneth was trying to say that the needle marks on her butt was because she was he they all knew that she was pregnant but she didn't want the baby and he didn't want the baby and so elizabeth gave consent to be injected with ergometrin yes ergometrin so 
Ergometrin is the generic name for a drug called ergonavine, and it is a medicine known as an ergot alkaloid. Typically, these are medically given to stop excessive bleeding that occurs after abortions or when a baby is delivered. They work by causing the muscle of the uterus to contract. Typically, a doctor would give this to treat postpartum hemorrhage and post-abortion hemorrhage. However, because of the mechanism of the drug causing uterus contractions, it could also be used to induce abortion. Yeah, a miscarriage, if you will. So typically, this medication is most effective towards the end of pregnancy. However, Elizabeth was kind of in the beginning of her pregnancy, correct? Yes, she was at eight weeks. Right. And so a lot of this medication would have to be given in order to induce that kind of um, muscular contraction in the uterus to kind of force a miscarriage or an abortion. Well, and not only that, like, that's why he was saying, oh, that's why there's four injection sites. Okay. Like, because we were just trying to force this thing. But either way, the drug wasn't detected, right? Well, it not only was it not detective, it doesn't have the side effects that she had, the vomiting, the sweating, the dilated pupils passing out in the tub. It wouldn't have had any of that. Mm Mm-hmm. With everything already built up, Kenneth was arrested for her murder. And then while he was waiting for the trial, they developed an even more sensitive test. That's the one that what Miss Mayday was talking about before, where they determined the uptake of glucose that was made by the rat diaphragm. It was basically like they could use the patient's blood serum to determine exactly how much glucose insulin balance there was. Right. And so like and how it's directly proportional. To the amount of insulin present, yes. Yeah. And so it was performed, and then they took the samples from Elizabeth, and they retested them with this more sensitive method prior to the trial, and everything was confirmed, 84 units of insulin. And so at his trial, his defense claimed that the experiment with the mice determined that Elizabeth had insulin in her, but there was no way to prove that she did not commit suicide by doing this. So they're basically saying, oh, she did it to herself. Mm Mm-hmm. But there was no motive for this and it, or no motive for him to kill her. The prosecution said that colleagues overheard Kenneth talk about how insulin would be the perfect murder tool. A fellow nurse was quoted as saying that Kenneth had said, you can kill somebody with insulin. It cannot be easily found in the body unless it's in very large doses. And another fact is the syringes were still present in the house and there were no vials of insulin, full, empty, or otherwise. So if she did inject herself, where and when would she have disposed of this? Right. If she did this by herself. And not to mention the fact, why would he have said that he injected her with the possible miscarriage drug if he's claiming that she had committed suicide? If you were trying to save your own rear end, wouldn't you have started with that? Right. Rather than lying about what it was. Right. It was only after the fact came forward that they did a medical test to prove that there was insulin that he decided to change his story and said that, well, yeah, she did it to herself. Right. So the defense going further claimed that Elizabeth was so distraught about being pregnant that that's why she injected herself. But remember, we said that the injection sites were on her butt, but they weren't like on like the hip area of the butt. They were really towards the back end which is not where you would be injecting yourself. Like you would have to picture if your hands were like tied behind your back, that's where the injection sites were. 
So yeah, it's very why? difficult, like for you to reach around that far. And right. why would and you do, do that? Four times. Yeah. Typically, so, you'd want to be looking at yeah, the area where you're or injecting. Just do something real easy. I mean, keep in mind these are intramuscular injections. Right. So if you're committing suicide, what does it matter if you do your thigh, your stomach? It, you could really inject yourself on any single part of your body. Why would you do it towards your butt crack? Yeah. Like that's, it's just very ridiculous. difficult area to, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Price actually explained that the insulin remained in Elizabeth's body so well was because she was in the bath. So when she drowned, her body stopped producing or processing the drug. When you die, obviously your entire circulatory system and everything dies with you. So there's nothing to pump the insulin any further into your body, which is why there was so much still at the injection sites, mm-hmm. even though it was hours later. Mm-hmm. It also proved that she died very quickly after entering the tub. Okay. The jury basically came back with a unanimous verdict within 30 minutes. And we've been over this before. When it's that fast, it's basically the jury needed to stand up, exit the courtroom, go into deliberations. The amount of time it takes 12 people to say guilty, guilty, guilty. Then you tell everybody that you're ready and you go back into the courtroom. That's about 30 minutes. (laughs) It's fast. So (laughs) 30 minutes is really fast for a verdict. And he was sentenced to life, even though he maintained his innocence through his 26-year imprisonment. He was released in 1984. Because as we know, life doesn't always mean life, especially if you have the possibility of parole. This was the first documented case of murder by insulin. And even though she technically died by drowning, the insulin facilitated her demise. Apparently, remember, he did have that 10-year-old son from a previous marriage. I couldn't find anything about that son further than that one claim that he was living with them at the time. I don't know what happened to him at all, if he had any contact with him after the release, his release in 1984, absolutely nothing. But that's fine because he should be able to remain in obscurity. Yeah. So keep in mind, that was all in the UK. Right. If, if you forgot, that was all in the UK. And we're not done yet because right around the same time, we're talking like 1956. So the previous case was 1957. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to the US. Right. And that's where we meet William Dale Archard because he contacted police in 1956 to report a robbery at his home in LA. He claimed that two robbers came in with guns and syringes. And using these syringes, they injected both him and his wife, Zella in the butt with an unknown liquid. Uh, The robbers then fled with $500 and nothing else. That included Zella's jewelry, which was laying out in the open. After the event, Zella was woozy, but she was still moving around, and she agreed with absolutely everything that her husband said happened. She did say at one point she had a pillowcase over her head, or not at one point. She said for the entire attack, she had a pillowcase over her head, But she doesn't know if her husband had a pillowcase. She doesn't know anything about anything, if you will, because she could not see. She just heard everything that was happening and basically said, this is what happened to me. And if my husband says that's what happened to him, too, this is exactly what happened. Okay. So the police left and Zella continued to decline. So when the police questioned her, they were like, okay, you know, you're recovering. We're all good. For some reason, they didn't take her to the hospital to figure out what they injected her with. It's the 50s. Maybe that's why. I have no idea. Yeah, that seems um, strange, but yeah. Common maybe practice we- today, that ain't going to happen. You're, mm-hmm. you're going to the hospital. So the police left. 
Zella started declining. She eventually lost consciousness. She started having convulsions and she wound up dying the following day. So police had to go back to the house. And during their search, they did find a hypodermic needle that was in a bathroom drawer. And they also found a half vial, um, half filled vial of long acting insulin in a nearby field. So they didn't just search the house. They were like, okay, we have a hypodermic needle, a dead lady, robbers that say that they're here. Maybe the robbers dropped something when they were fleeing. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they looked in the nearby field and found the insulin vial. During a medical exam, what are the odds? It showed there were four injection sites on Zella's butt and William didn't have any. But what are the odds that Right around the same time on a completely different continent, four injection sites on the buttocks of a deceased wife. Right. The craziness. Really strange. (laughs) And I mean, presumably they would not have known about each other's cases at the same exact time period. Yeah. I mean, we're talking a year apart. Even if they did start reading news articles, they wouldn't have published that amount. Those type of details. No. Yeah. So Sergeant... Harry Andre of Los Angeles told the coroner about the insulin vial, but there was no toxic substance found in Zella, and there was no way to measure insulin in the body except in a research lab at this time. So keep in mind, this is 1956, and everything that happened with Kenneth was 1957. Mm -hmm. So you have to remember, like, we are still before that, but we're on the cusp of it. Right. And so they decided to declare the cause of death as bronchopneumonia. The sergeant was like, Okay, I understand why you did that, but I think you're wrong. I mean, he just thinks that there's something fishy. Exactly. And so let's give a little bit of history about William Dale Archard. He was born in 1912 in Arkansas. He always wanted to be a doctor, but he never had the discipline to make it a career. So sometime between 1912 and 1940, he migrated from Arkansas to California, and he worked as an assistant in the Camarillo State Mental Hospital. So Camarillo is, I mean, yeah, first let's talk mental hospitals at this time. Again, we're in the fifties. We're in controversial times, if you will. So a little bit about Camarillo mental hospital first, and then we'll talk about some of the treatments that they did. Yeah. So again, William Archard is working in the state of California at the Camarillo state mental hospital. And this is in the forties, so 1940 to 1941, This mental hospital was also known as Camarillo State Hospital, and it was a public psychiatric hospital for both patients with developmental disabilities as well as mental illness. It was functional from 1936 to 1997. It's interesting because this former hospital campus gets redeveloped and reopened in 2002 as the California State University Channel Islands. Yes. So it's really funny to me and interesting to me that this mental hospital is now California State University Channel Islands. Which Um, used to be a polyp, if you will, of California State University Northridge. Oh, I did not know that. And so the university itself retains this distinctive mission revival style architecture, which is what the mental hospital looked like. It was uh, mission style. Mm-hmm. And this part of the campus, the campus is much larger than just the mental hospital now, but uh, the bell tower in the South Quad is now adopted basically as a symbol of the university of California State University Channel Islands. So they utilize this image of the mental hospital as the hallmark for their university. So anytime you see anything with regards to Cal State 
Channel Islands were looking at that once upon a time Camarillo State Mental Hospital. Yes. And do you want to hear a fun fact about that location? Sure. (laughs) Back in the day, Mm -hmm. I was an extra in a guerrilla filming movie called Swine. It was part of a trilogy Uh and it was filmed there at a portion like a right near an underground bunker that was on the land of the mental hospital. And I believe that was like in the early 2000s that I did that. So right when they reopened it Uh as as a college campus. Yeah. So we like snuck on there and Mm -hmm. it it was pretty funny. So if you like post-apocalyptic movies, go ahead and Google swine. It was, it was fun. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to have to look into that. (laughs) Okay. So this is the location and site where, where William Archard is working in the forties. Yes. And so because it is a mental institution in the 1940s, we're going to talk about one. We know that we've said many times, like we will talk about asylums. I don't know if it'll be an entire episode on asylums or if we're just going to keep nugget dropping different treatments that they've done throughout time, like the progression. And so we're going to focus today on talking how this would affect the cases that we're talking. So we're talking about insulin. And so they did use that as one of their treatments. Well, quotes, treatments. <laughs> right. So at the time, while William Archard is working at this mental hospital, this mental hospital is utilizing a treatment called insulin shock therapy. Now, insulin shock therapy or insulin coma therapy was a form of psychiatric treatment. And how this works is that they repeatedly inject patients with large doses of insulin in order to produce comas. And they do this over the course of several weeks, inducing multiple comas, like 30 to 50 of these comas over and over again. Now, this sounds crazy to me, but it is the 40s. And we're going to back up to why this was a Theory. theory and why it was actually happening to people in the 40s. So in 1927, this technique of insulin shock therapy was introduced by an Austrian-American psychiatrist named Manfred Sackel or Sackel. And it was used extensively during the 1940s and 50s to treat schizophrenia. It eventually and thankfully falls out of favor in the 1960s when other neuroleptic drugs are invented. But during the 40s and 50s, it was one of the physical treatments um, that was introduced into psychiatry at the time, right around the first four decades of the 20th century. There's other physical treatments called convulsive therapy. So these are things we know as electroconvulsive therapy. And we'll talk about that one more specifically in a future episode. Right. And so that's electrotherapy, right? There was also something that they called deep sleep therapy and something called psychosurgery. So these were kind of all of the physical treatments that were introduced right around the same time as insulin coma therapy. And they were in this collective category of treatments called convulsive therapies or shock therapies. Now, the principle behind here was that patients could be jolted out of their episodes of mental illness. So um, the therapy took place over a number of weeks or months where patients would basically be given daily 
in insulin injections to the overdoses point, of them. Yeah. Right. To the point of inducing a coma like state. And these comas would last hours before they were reversed by hospital staff with an injection of glucose. So they were intentionally causing people to get into these comas, insulin induced comas. Then they would inject them with glucose to reverse the effects of the um, insulin. Now they were just trying to get them to snap out of it. Correct. This shock therapy, right? Yeah. Like just snap out of your mental You'll disorder. Be fine. Yeah. And they thought that insulin coma therapy was the best therapy for schizophrenia. Yes. Yeah. And I believe also because um, sometimes the insulin would cause seizures mm-hmm. and they thought that the seizures themselves, because they are a direct effect on the brain, that that also was going to cause some like new reset. developments in the brain. Yeah. That- it would just like reset it, like plugging and unplugging a computer. Uh-huh. We're just going to reset your brain. They, they were trying the IT fix. Yeah. <laughs> Did you try yeah. And turning this was, it off and turning it on again? Yeah. And this was a widely held concept in psychiatry. This oh, is yeah. kind of why I have a little bit of qualms with psychiatry. Oh, wait until, uh, uh, let us know if you want us to do an entire episode on lobotomies because, yeah. oh my gosh, is there a history there? Yeah. So we will definitely deep dive on these physical therapies you know, in the other episodes, whether this oh, yeah. is something we're going to do as a Patreon or like, just like you said, kind of touch on it in multiple cases, because it does come into play into society oh, as yeah. well as criminality and mental health. Yes. So anywho, this was how Archard was kind of aware of yes. insulin induced comas and what it would do. And if he wanted to reverse it, he would know how. Okay. This is going to get a little bit convoluted, and I'm going to do my best to explain this. So while working at this facility, Archard's friend, William E. Jones. So yeah, they're both named William. So at this point, I'm going to use their last names. Archard's friend, Jones, was accused of molesting a little girl. Archard, who was married to Eleanor, not Zella. (laughs) Okay. At the time. Back in the 40s. Archard had a wife named Eleanor in the 40s. He also had a mistress named Dorothea, who was also a nurse, but she was not a nurse at the mental hospital. She was a nurse at another local hospital. So he finessed Dorothea to smuggle insulin out of her hospital. So there was no trace back to him Mm -hmm. because obviously Dorothea was a secret because she was a mistress. Mm -hmm. And what he said to Dorothea is that he was going to use the insulin to simulate his own head injury for an accident. Then what they were going to do is try and ask people for money for help to recover from said accident. So think about GoFundMe now. Right. So they were trying to do that in the 40s to raise money to give to Jones so he could pay off the little girl's family so they would no longer press charges against him. So so weird. Okay. Like I said, super convoluted, but all of this is to get Jones out of trouble for molesting a girl because right. he was friends with Archard. Okay. Okay. So Archard now has insulin and instead of injecting himself, he decided to ask Jones like, oh, how about I inject you instead? Okay. 
So the police received an anonymous phone call about a car accident with an injury. And when police arrived, they found Jones and took him to the hospital. While at the hospital, Jones fell unconscious and his condition kept going downhill. And his friend Archard would continue to visit him. And oh my gosh, isn't he so like, this is so sad. He had an accident. He's going to need help. Mm -hmm. Um, One medical personnel claimed that they saw Archard inject Jones with something. They had no idea what. And eventually Jones did succumb to what they thought were injuries from the wreck. And while hospitalized, there were donations gathered about $300 to basically help with his medical expenses. And they did give a portion of this. Archer gave a portion of this to Jones's family, but it definitely wasn't the whole amount. Mm -hmm. In 1949, William divorced Eleanor. Then he married Dorothea. The mistress. Mm. Okay. During this marriage in 1950, he was convicted to five years probation because he possessed morphine while living in San Francisco. So he was never, you know, obviously prescribed morphine. It was obviously smuggled out of one of the hospitals that him or Dorothea worked at. So they're up in San Francisco now. Mm-hmm. It was five years probation, but he did have to serve some time in the minim- minimum security prison in Chino. He escaped it okay. because it's minimum security. So he was rearrested. He got sent to San Quentin. Right. Okay. So we're in Northern California, San Quentin. Right. So we will go from Camarillo, which is in Southern Southern California. Yeah. Southern California. And now we're up in San Francisco. He gets popped on this morphine charge. He's illegally possessing large amounts of morphine. So he's serving this five-year sentence, part of which is in the minimum security in prison in Chino. Then he escapes and now he's in San Quentin. Now, San Quentin is really interesting because San Quentin is the oldest penal institution in California. It opened in 1852, and San Quentin is located on Puente de Quentin. This is land historically named after a Native American chief who was a part of the Coast Miwok tribe, and his name was Quentin. So that's why this area just north of San Francisco is called Puente de Quentin, This is where the site of San Quentin is. Now, San Quentin is very famous in California because it is notorious. It is the only prison in California that has an electric chair at the time because it's the only prison that has the ability to do executions. Yeah, it was the only prison with a death row. Right. Yes. And this is where on death row got sent there. Which is how it became infamous. Right. Because all of California's baddies ended up going here. Oh, so many. So (laughs) now, because it is, and currently it is still California's only death chamber is located at San Quentin. Um, So it has been doing execution since 1893 when California has executions which we can go into later. It's yeah. kind of a patchy history with executions. We, I still right. don't even know if we have a death sentence here. <laughs> yeah. It's sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. No right now, it's, Maybe. it's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, the San Quentin is really fascinating. And when I started looking into it, I kind of got super interested in it. But the reason why San Quentin becomes a prison in California is a result of the gold rush. So we know that the gold rush brings lots of people to the state and it is the leading factor that facilitates the need for California's first prison. So rapid increase in immigration led to increase in crime. 
and San Quentin was the state's answer to what to do with all of these prisoners because prisoners at the time were going to really small county jails or they were going to prisons that were on boats. So actual prison ships. Yes. Because California, we have a large coastline. The ocean right there is very accessible. And so they would literally stick boats tied off of California's coastline and they would put prisoners on these boats. They would have easily survived the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, (laughs) it is really fascinating to me because one, obviously, as a sailor, it 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 has ships. I'm like, wow, this is amazing to me. This fun, interesting fact. So what San Quentin itself gets built by prisoners that were housed inmates on a ship called the Waban, which were offshore off of San Francisco. So Waban is a ship that is off of Angel Island, just outside San Francisco. And there at the time were about 40 inmates on board. This was around like- How eight- big were these ships? They were, they were relatively huge. They were, they were ships, like tall ships. So why was there only 40 people? Um, because it's not a large space down below. Okay. And because they're prisoners, they're not allowed to just be on top deck, right? Unless they're working under guard. And below the ship, there's not a lot of space technically in the interior. At the time, so around 1851, there's a ship called Waban. It's kind of towed to Angel Island. It's anchored there off of Angel Island. 40 inmates are on board and they're under the supervision of Sheriff Hayes at the time. There was actually two floating jails in San Francisco's history, but we're going to be talking about the Waban because the Waban basically becomes San Quentin okay? because they use these inmates to build San Quentin so that they can move into San Quentin and expand the amount of inmates that the state of California could hold. So that ends up happening and they move the ship Waban um, off of San Quentin Point in 1852. And then they build San Quentin. So that's kind of an interesting transition of how the Waban becomes San Quentin. And we will talk about the other prison ship, which was called the Euphemia in another episode. Right. And then when we're talking about how San Quentin is like super famous, Rodney Alcala, Scott Peterson, Richard Ramirez, I can't even think about who else, but uh, Charles Manson, they're uh, Charles Ng, they're all there or were until their deaths. Pretty fascinating. That's why, you know, we get real fascinated about certain prisons, which is weird, but whatever. It is what it is. (laughs) Yeah, it is what it is. Okay. So he's in San Quentin. He's released in 1953 and then has to serve probation. And his marriage to Dorothea, I don't know how, but it got annulled in 1956. So they were married for about five years or six years. And somehow he was able to get that marriage annulled. Rather than having to get a divorce. Mm -hmm. No specifics. But this freed William to marry Zella, Zella Winders. And as we know, Zella did not make it. A couple of months after, within a year of their marriage, she died from the home invasion 
allegedly. Right. Uh, So the next year, he married his fourth wife, which is Gladys Stewart. They divorced shortly after their marriage, believed because he was already seeing his fifth wife, Juanita Plum. Wow. So, oh, this, this guy, guy must is be like a charmer or something. I how how is he meeting all these women? I don't know. You and know convincing what? them to marry him. I I need to look up a picture of this guy because I, I maybe I, I've heard okay, so he has a nickname called Bluebeard. And yes. I I have read that he had China blue eyes. I don't know what that means, but I'm assuming they're blue eyes, but I don't know what China blue eyes mean. I think it's like that ice blue. Oh, okay. wait, no, China. I think it's, you know, those um, like plates, the and... white. Yeah. And with the blue uh-huh. fine detail, I think it's that, that color. And then he had wavy white hair. Okay. And which is very weird because that is the opposite of what Bluebeard looked like the pirate. Oh, I think that's just because Bluebeard murderer killer. Yeah. He doesn't look that attractive. I'm going to, I'm going to go on record for that one, but yeah. So I don't, I don't know, but okay. So he's on fifth wife Juanita. Yes. And so, (laughs) okay. He doesn't have very good luck with his wives. So he married her in Las Vegas in 1958. So we're, we've gone Arkansas, California. Now we're in Vegas, Mm -hmm. which is Nevada. He just has terrible luck and he needed help again when Juanita fell into a coma two days after their wedding. Oh, shame. Yeah. yeah, uh, Not suspicious. So she was rushed to the hospital and she died within hours. The doctors believed that she had gone comatose after injecting herself with barbiturates. Right. And we went over barbiturates in the last episode. Barbiturates are, again, at the time, very popular around the 1940s and 50s as a sleeping aid, commonly diagnosed for helping, you know, people calm down if they were anxious and sleep. But we know that barbiturates in general, the family at the time, Barbitone or Barbadol under the brand name Veronal was very popular. Yes. And what it's normally a a pill or a liquid, but he injected or she injected herself because William told the police that she had a drug habit. Mm -hmm. Well, this couldn't be confirmed because the blood test didn't detect it, didn't detect any barbiturates or anything. She did have low blood sugar, however, but they didn't think that that was suspicious enough. So they just chalked her death up to an overdose. Okay. A year later, his sixth wife, Gladys, comes into play. This is the same Gladys who was his fourth wife. So he remarries Gladys. Yes. Okay. So he le- it was Gladys divorced Juanita who died, then back to Gladys. Okay. William was friends with Gladys's ex-husband, Frank Stewart. And he was present at one of the strangest accidents that could have happened. So Frank Stewart was taken to the hospital after allegedly slipping on a banana peel in the bathroom of an airport while on a business trip with William. You know that huh. joke of people slipping on banana peels, falling and hitting their head? Yeah. This really happened to him. Okay. Legitimately happened to him. Okay. That is weird. <laughs> yeah. And so he struck his head. He never regained consciousness. But, okay, so this is what William said. But based on the evidence that was at the scene, they determined this is exactly how it happened. Yeah. Like, I'm sure it's, it's a public place. It's an airport. Everyone probably saw this and witnessed him slipping on a banana peel, hitting his head, hitting his head and going into a coma. And then he died in 1960. Okay. 
And so this is Gladys's ex-husband. So a lot of people dying around William. Uh-huh. Yeah, very much so. Now let's go all the way back to Zella's death. Remember Sergeant Andre from Los Angeles? Mm-hmm. So he always had William on his radar. Yeah. He just was like, mm, this is a conundrum. This yeah. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of detectives, they have that one case that just niggles at them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, looking up William and as he's going, he heard about the two Nevada deaths, Juanita and Frank Stewart. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't do anything about it because it's out of his jurisdiction. But he did report his suspicions to the Nevada authorities like, hey, maybe you might want to look into these a little bit deeper just because of this thing that happened while he was living in California. Mm-hmm. They did look into it, but they couldn't find any hard evidence on William because nobody measured Frank's glucose at the time of his death okay. because it was an accident. So right. did he fall and crack his head and the banana happened to be there? So it's it's we're getting into some weirdness here. So now Sergeant Andre, he's reading a paper a year after all of this, when William's name came to his notice again. And that's when his 15-year-old nephew, Bernie Kirk Archard, died after a hit-and-run accident in Nevada as well. Mm -hmm. And William was the one who took him to the hospital in 1961, and he was still semi-conscious. And Bernie told the staff that he had a sore hip, sore head. They also noticed that he had one dilated pupil. And... I thought this was common knowledge that a lot of the times during a concussion, one of your pupils dilates a lot. Like you've been sitting in a dark room or you're high on drugs. And the other one is completely normal. It is very visibly obvious for a concussion when that pupil dilates. I did not know that. I thought it was just sort of a thing because of detached retinas, but yeah. Yeah. So interesting. So they, they noted at the hospital yeah, that they he said had that he only had one, one dilated pupil. Right. And that is highly indicative of a concussion, which would happen in the hit and run ac- accident. But we've talked about atropine before. Yes. And that also causes a dilation of the pupil. Right. So one could also use atropine sulfate as an eye drop to cause the pupil to dilate. And this is was widely known because it's what's used at your eye exam to dilate your pupils. Right. And so he would have had access. William to could him. have, yeah, access to something like that. Okay. So could it be a synthetic concussion, quote unquote? <laughs> right. A manufactured one. Right. Maybe, maybe. So Bernie did lose consciousness and he did die 10 days later. And the lab noted that he also had low glucose in his cerebrospinal fluid. And that was collected because of the cause of his coma. So they do collect a lot of different body fluids depending on what you die of, um, especially in a hospital, because they want to make sure that it wasn't them that caused the death when you came in for something else. And so the pathologist considered kind of like how Dr. Price did. He was like, maybe this coma was due to insulin because he knew about Kenneth Barlow's case. Ah, because so, we are many years later. We're in 1961. Correct. And so Kenneth Barlow has been convicted of everything, which means that everything is on the table, including all of the test methods that they use to determine the death by insulin overdose. Right. And because he's aware of what's happening on this other continent, he's like, hey, maybe that's what happened here. Super crazy. So glad that he thought of it and that this case was so brand new in his head. And that's how these two cases are connected, which is why we're covering both. 
So he couldn't exactly prove it because they didn't take enough samples at the time of death to be able to mimic the same tests that they did in the UK. And so unfortunately, they did have to list this cause of death as a car accident. Well, Sergeant Andre is like, okay, this is way too many deaths in William's periphery. And deaths by coma. Yeah. So Sergeant Andre's like, I'm not letting this one go. So mm-hmm. he brought the accident report to his colleague, Sergeant White, in the homicide squad, still in California. Sergeant White investigated the fatal car accident and he examined the reports for accuracy. And he could find no fault with the report. But now William was on Sergeant White's radar as well. Mm-hmm. So these are now two detectives or a detective and a sergeant in California that are thinking there is no way that William is not responsible for all these deaths. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to charge William in a fraud case because he had staged a car accident shortly after Bernie's death. So that car accident, they were able to determine based on the accident report that it was staged. So they were able to get William on that. Okay. Okay. So at this time, He divorced Gladys again, and he found a seventh wife. This is his final wife. And in 1965, while using the name James Lynn Arden. So he changes his name. Yes. And so Mary Brinker Post Arden was a romance author, and she wrote under the name Mary Brinker Post. She wrote books like Annie Jordan, a novel of Seattle in 1948. She wrote Matt Regan's Lady in 1955. The reason that I bring that up is apparently like if you're into romance novels and stuff, she's a pretty big name. Okay. Um, So if you know the name Mary Brinker Post, that's her. Okay. She was a widow at this time. Her children were grown. So her and William got married. Okay. And I, I'm really But William is now named James Post. Uh, James. Oh, sorry. James James Lynn Arden. Arden. Okay. So what. Is I try, you know, I really try for the victims to try their find their backstories. And unfortunately, like every article that I ever found only focused on William. And so I apologize if it seems that I'm favoring his history and his path through life, but it's just I couldn't find anything about their history. So I'm not doing this on purpose. I really tried. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's I all apologize we know on, to the victims and their families. Okay. So in 1966, Mary had a car accident. She was able to go home from the, you know, even though she did have injuries, but they were superficial. But the next morning, William James, I I don't know which one. I'm calling him Williams. I don't care. Or William. So he stated Mary wouldn't wake up and the ambulance came to render aid and they found her with a swollen face, a protruding tongue, pinpoint pupils, and she was drooling. So William told the rescue workers that she took sleeping pills. And so they took Mary to the hospital for tests. So now they're thinking, okay, maybe she's like overdosing on sleeping pills. We have to take her in. Mm -hmm. She again was found to have low blood sugar and barbiturates in her system. Now, Mary has fallen into a deep coma at this point, and she died later that night. So this is now one accident, way too many. And the science finally caught up with him. All these deaths were murder. It was determined, was concluded. And in 1967, they had the means to test for insulin in the body. So this is because Kenneth's case was 10 years previous. Now they knew what to collect, when to collect it, what to test for, and how to get conclusive results. So that way they can determine definitely what's going on. Right. So we've already talked about the sensitive test that was developed, but there was another test that was available that was not as precise. And that's the test that they used in this case. Unknown why they chose the less precise test, but what it did is it measured insulin levels using antibodies. 
And so this was performed on a brain piece that was sampled from Bernie that was removed at his autopsy. And they also tested Mary's brain, which was also removed at autopsy. And both samples tested positive for insulin. But and if you compared that to normal decedent brain tissue, that did not have insulin in it. Okay. So again, they did perform the control. So based on all this evidence, William was arrested in 1967 and officially charged with the murders of Bernie, Zella, and Mary. So mm-hmm. all of them, which I find weird because Bernie was in Nevada and Zella was in California. So I'm not quite sure how they were able to. They were probably already working with the other jurisdiction at the time. Yeah. So the the detectives and sergeants that were in Los Angeles were concerned with Zella, his previous wife, and then they were suspicious of Bernie's death in Nevada. I don't right, know where but Mary- like Normally you can't charge um, two different states in the same criminal case. Yeah. I, I think they were probably charged separately. So okay. he was probably charged for Zella's murder in California, and then he was charged with Bernie's in Nevada. Okay, I don't and know where Mary was. I'm not 100% sure where they were living at the time that he was married to Mary. I don't know. It, it doesn't specifically say where they were living at that point. But either way, so he's charged with all of them. And the court did allow the evidence to be presented about Juanita and Frank's death as well. Okay. So even though he wasn't charged with that, they basically wanted to bring up, like, look at all these suspicious deaths in his periphery when you're thinking about charging him for these other three deaths. Okay. So just keep all that in mind because, you know, we're bouncing back and forth, Nevada, California accident. They didn't get proper autopsy results, like all this stuff. So they were also able to introduce evidence about William Jones's death because William's second wife, Dorothea testified about smuggling out the insulin for her husband, William. Okay. William waived his right to a jury trial. You can do that. You you don't have to have a jury of your quote unquote peers. He just wanted the judge to be the one to try the case. And based on all the evidence and the witness accounts, probably mainly because also of the testimony of Dorothea, he was found guilty of all three counts of first degree murder. And he was sentenced to death by gas chamber because that's what they have at San Quentin in 1968. Mm -hmm. In 1972, his sentence was converted to life in prison by the U.S. Supreme Court, which at the time ruled that the death penalty was cruel and unusual punishment. It was reinstated in 1974. Like I said, right now, California keeps flip-flopping. So who knows what we're at by the time this gets released? (laughs) Yeah. So at the time he was originally convicted, he was sentenced to death. Then then it was... Committed. Yes. Be to life um, because of this U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 1972. And so now we are at. Well, then in 1974, even though he was previously sentenced to death, since it had been converted, they can't resentence him to death. Correct. So he's continuing his life in prison. Right. But it really didn't matter because he died from pneumonia in 1977 at the age of 65. Yeah. Literally, the only motive anybody can figure out that he committed all of these murders was money. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming he was receiving life insurance policy payouts with all of these tragedies that were occurring around him. Or even remember the William Jones, he was doing that like, oh, for this terrible accident. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he kind of pocketed a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that was his only motive. Greed. Okay. All right. So 
that was a, a heavy hitting case. Lots of details. I hope really you guys enjoyed it. Yeah. All right. So I've got three <laughs> jokes. Okay. I'm calling them jokes in quotes. So they say laughter is the best medicine. However, I think a diabetic would think the answer is insulin. Mm, okay. <laughs> so if you do not understand murder by injection, we think you missed the point. Oh, okay. And an insulin injection should be subcutaneous, but when the person dies, it's all in vain. Mm, that was a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Nice. I had to load it up because I have no clue if we're ever going to have another insulin murder case. So I, I heavy yeah. loaded this one. <laughs> yeah. No, those are good. I like those. Well, thank All right. You. So let us know if you guys want us to cover any more cases. Our next case is actually a request. So we're really excited we a, about that. A listener request. Yeah. And uh, that'll be the next one we cover. And if you like us, rate us on your wherever you listen. Be sure to share us on your socials, friends and family. And we'll talk to you next week. See you next week. Vintage Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery. Thanks again for listening to True Crime by Indie Drop-In Network. If you would like to nominate a true crime podcast to be featured, just send me a tweet at Indie Drop-In. I'd also love to hear if one of our featured podcasts is now your favorite show. Indie Drop-In survives off ad revenue and listener donations. If you would like to contribute, please consider buying me a coffee. You can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Indie Drop-In. If you look at the very bottom of the episode description, I put a link in there to make it really easy. Indie Drop-In has many other shows that you also might like. Just go to IndieDropIn.com. All right, see you next week.